Welcome to the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Anne Louise Gittleman is a New York Times bestselling author of over 37 books on diet, detox, the environment, and women's health. For more than four decades, Anne Louise has been regarded as a leading voice and visionary in nutrition and who has fearlessly stood on the front lines of holistic and integrative medicine. For more information, check out annlouise.com. That's A-N-N-L-O-U-I-S-E.com. And here's your host, Anne Louise Gittleman. Hey everyone, Anne Louise Gittleman here for First Lady of Nutrition, where every single week we bring you the latest and greatest in nutritional health and healing. As many of you know, I've been on the front lines of nutrition for 40 years, and so I know many of these experts personally and can attest to their integrity, their intelligence, and their passion. So speaking of passion, visit me, please, on my passionate website, annlouise.com, where you'll see all the latest in health and healing. I have a wonderful listing of podcast episodes that you may have missed. Leave us a review if you will be so kind and take a look at all the supplements that I've hand curated for the best of all of you. So now on to my guest. His name is Dr. Joseph Pizzorno, and my friends, he is truly a rock star in the field of nutrition. He's the founding president of Bastyr University, which was the first accredited institution in the field for naturopaths. He's also the author of six textbooks and eight consumer books on health and healing. And today we're going to talk about toxins and your liver, my favorite organ. Hi, Dr. Bizzorno. Tell me what you're up to. You are a true pioneer and I take my hat off to you. Well, thank you for your your kind compliment. So what am I working on? I, I'm at this interesting phase in my life where I've been doing this for a long time, I mean, over half a century. Oh, you know, my I'm, gosh. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You know, so, you know, I'm a smart guy. I have good memory. And, you know, I was trained in these foundational principles of nature and how to be healthy. And now the research is catching up. So it's, it's just so much fun. I, I'm uh, I'm enjoying it. So. I, I like looking at old-time naturopathic concepts and evaluating them based on current research, and it's fascinating. And so um, uh, here's an example of one area that I've looked at that I think is so important, and that's eating real food. You know, the old-time naturopath said, don't eat this processed food. It's bad for you. And and if you eat your food, you know, make sure it's organically grown, not chemically grown. Well, now the research is so clear that not only is organically grown food safer from the perspective of having less toxins in it, but another area that I'm starting to look at is something I'm calling kind of facetiously unimportant molecules. Mm. What do I mean by that? So when you look at the uh, research that was done to determine nutrition, um, it was mostly done 100 years ago. I mean, we still continue to learn about nutrition, but the core things like the vitamins and the minerals and the amino acids it was all figured out about 100 years ago. And they were limited by the technology of the time and by the animal research they were able to do. So they determined that these 42 elements, molecules, vitamins, minerals, fatty acids, carbohydrates, <clears throat> they determined that those were necessary for life. And then they made the implicit assumption they were the only things important in food. Well, I started looking at food and asked myself a question. Well, how many molecules are in food? Well, it looks like it may be as many as 50,000 molecules. So 
we apparently decided that 99.9% of what was in food was not important. Well, we then start looking at those other molecules and we find they're incredibly important for health. I mean, we talk about phytonutrients. Well, that sounds pretty sexy and pretty exciting. You can buy it in a dietary supplement, but it's just replacing molecules that should have been in the food supply to begin with. When we grow foods chemically rather than organically, these other molecules are lost. But since they're considered unimportant, it didn't matter. So when you compare the vitamin mineral content of organically grown foods versus chemically grown foods, yeah, the organic's better. I mean, not dramatic, but it's better. But we look at the other molecules, conventionally grown foods have lost around 90% of the other molecules. So are you talking about polyphenols, for example? Give us some ideas. Great. Polyphenols, uh, carotenoids, flavonoids, just all, molecule after molecule. So one which kind of interacts with my current obsession, which is environmental medicine, is um, a bioflavonoid called fluoritin. And I assume you probably haven't heard about that. I sure didn't hear about it before. Now, would, it. You, would you spell that for us, please? P-H-L-O-R-E-T-I-N. Never heard so of it. <laughs> okay. So here's why it's important. So number one is, what's the worst toxin people are being exposed to actually throughout the world, but we'll just stick to, with the U.S. for now? Glyphosate, would you say? No. Arsenic. Oh, you might my say, goodness. wait a minute, arsenic? Everybody knows arsenic's bad for you. So it turns out that one third of Americans, when you measure the byload of arsenic, typically through urinary arsenic levels, one third of people have enough arsenic in their body to, to be known to cause disease. It is such a big problem that arsenic is now known to cause around one quarter of all cancers and about one fifth of all fatal heart, heart attacks. Oh my God. So where's it, where, it coming from, doctor? Water, food, rice. and then food is rice and chicken. Those are your kind of main things. But, you know, if you got uh, an old uh, climbing toys in the backyard that your kids play on with that old treated lumber, it was treated with arsenic compounds. There's lots of examples of these preserved woods in our environment causing trouble. Now let's go back to the to the floritin. Mm. So it turns out we are very good. Humans are good at detoxifying arsenic as long as all the nutrients necessary are available. Okay, so how do we get rid of arsenic? We do it through methylation. You've probably talked about homocysteine and mm -hmm. MTHFR polymorphisms to your, your clientele. Mm -hmm. So when people's homocysteine levels go up, they have less available methyl groups so they have trouble getting rid of arsenic. So mm -hmm. people can be exposed to arsenic. Too many people have high levels of, of, uh, of uh, homocysteine, so arsenic's more toxic. But here's where it gets even more interesting. So it turns out that fluoritin, this flavonoid that's lost from food when it's chemically grown, does two things that are really important. Number one is it helps activate the enzyme that detoxifies arsenic. Mm -hmm. So we have higher fluoritin levels to get rid of arsenic more quickly. But fluoritin also protects the DNA from the arsenic damage that causes cancer. Mm. So you have a situation where the average arsenic levels are slowly going up, and now the level of these molecules protect us are going down. Now let's go back to the homocysteine story. Everybody knows about MTHFR, polymorphisms being a problem. Mm. 
it's only a problem if you're relying on folic acid for your folates because natural folates in food are already methylated. So they bypass the MTHFR. So here we, get, we create a situation where we made people have higher level of homocysteine, more toxic to things like arsenic because we've removed from our food supply fermented foods. And we're taking instead folic acid, which is synthetic chemical, not found in nature, that has to be metabolized before it can work physiologically. And a lot of people have the, don't have the right enzymes to properly metabolize them. Mm, fascinating. So do, can we take a supplement with fluoritin? Um, I, I would guess you can. I don't know yet. What I tell people if they're being exposed to arsenic, eat organic apples. Because it turns out apples are one of the best sources of fluoritin in the food supply. Interesting. But if you're not eating organic, avoid apples because they're usually yeah. sprayed with arsenic. Sprayed, sprayed, sprayed. Yes, arsenic and everything else. Yeah, you know, I assume you've heard the ballad of J Johnny Appleseed. Mm. I wonder if that whole thing about an apple a day keeping the doctor away is because arsenic is so common, people who ate more apples got rid of their arsenic more effectively. Now, I don't know if that's true. I haven't, found, I haven't looked for a study to see if, if, it, if that's proven, but it kind of seems logical to me. How interesting. Let me ask you another question with regard to homocysteine. What yes. levels are regard by by your naturopathic standards are regarded to be too high? In other words, what should we look at when we do a new blood well, test? Well, too high and too low. Now, it's not common to be too low, but it can be a problem if it's too low as well. Remember, all the homocysteine in the body is made by the body. It's really important intermediate metabolite. Problem is if it gets too high. So my recommended range is six to nine. Oh, good. I just took a blood test. I'm at number eight. Right, 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 right where you want to be. <laughs> See, remember, the uh, the homocysteine, in, we think about it in terms of methyl groups, which is important, helps carry methyl groups around, but also it's a storage form for cysteine, which is required for glutathione production. Exactly. And is glutathione one of your favorite detoxification elements for toxins? My favorite. And tell us why, because I want to talk a little bit about the liver too, because you're such an expert. Why do you like glutathione? So it, um, it's hard to find a molecule that's more closely associated with healthy aging and resistance to environmental toxins. Uh, if you look at virtually every chronic degenerative disease, uh, it's also associated with depletion of glutathione. The glutathione plays a number of roles, uh, the most important of which is, number one, maybe surprising to people, and that is protect the mitochondria. Because mm. mitochondria, you know, produce all this energy and also produce a lot of free radicals. Well, glutathione binds those free radicals before they cause damage. Well, a person depleted in glutathione and their mitochondria break down more quickly because they can't protect themselves from their own oxidative damage. Then you look at glutathione for things like mercury, for example. The way the body gets rid of mercury is by binding to glutathione and getting it out through the liver. Now, some goes out through the kidneys as well, but mainly through the liver. Um, phase two detoxification. We think about the liver having phase one and phase two detoxification. One of the critical detoxifications in the liver is phase two, and one of those is glutathione conjugation. Absolutely critical for detoxification of things like acetaminophen. We also know that for every molecule detoxified by phase one, uh, activity in the liver, we produce one molecule free radical. And it's up to then the glutathione in the liver to neutralize that free radical as quickly as possible so it doesn't damage the liver. That's why people die from mushroom poisoning because the mushroom poisoning, the liver 
very, very energetic, like it's supposed to, gets rid of all those really damaging chemicals in the, in the mushrooms. But it gets rid of them so quickly, it depletes the glutathione levels in the liver, and then the liver starts to break down. That's why one of the, the standard of care for mushroom poisoning is uh, either milk thistle or um, IV and N-acetylcysteine, NAC for short, because the body converts NAC to glutathione very, very quickly. So where should we be getting our glutathione? Should it be in a precursor, direct glutathione? Should it be some sort of whey protein isolate, bonded to cysteine? What's your favorite? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in general, a whole foods diet uh, will tend to have more glutathione in it. Um, but if you want to take a supplement, the one which is most effective for the price is NAC or N-acetylcysteine for short. So 500 milligrams of NAC twice a day will increase red blood cell glutathione by about 30%. Bring on the NAC. What about certain foods? Are they rich in glutathione? I'm thinking- Yeah, there, there are some. So um, in general, the foods that are richest, richest in cysteine will be the most effective at promoting glutathione production. The ray limiting step in the body for production of glutathione is availability of cysteine. And cysteine helps to chelate mercury and arsenic, am I correct? To some degree, but it's much more effective when it's converted to NAC, which the body does very, very effectively. Okay. Now, another thing when looking at the uh, glutathione uh, in, in the liver is that it um, also plays a big, big role in many of the chemicals that we have to detoxify as well. So glutathione is the most important intracellular antioxidant, would you suggest? Yep. And right. what do you and what do we like for phase one, phase two? If if you were to tell people about a liver detox supplement, what would that be? Milk, thistle, organ, grapefruit. So there's there's two components to this. Number one is making sure the nutrients necessary for the liver to function properly are are all available at adequate levels. So um, right now, and so you you have a, a an audience of a lot of women. Yeah. Well, it turns out that those phase one enzymes are all iron dependent. So if a person is anemic, wow. they're not going to be able to produce as many of those phase ones as they need to. Oh, say that again, Dr. Bismarno. Yeah. This is exceedingly important. Nobody talks about that. And half my people are anemic. Yeah. Yep. When you're anemic, so so it's, it's called a heme protein. The the, uh, the, uh, the phase one liver enzymes are called saccharin P450s. And uh, they are basically a heme uh, protein, which means they're based, they're based on iron. So if iron is not available can't produce as many of those enzymes as necessary. Just the right really, amount of iron. Where too much isn't good, but there's a sweet spot, I imagine. Yes, yes. and I recommend a ferritin level between 50 and 100 as kind of a, a good ballpark for both men and women. Do you like a particular heme supplement if one needs one? You know, that's such a good question. Uh, in my past life, I did a lot of natural childbirth. So of course I was always having to deal with anemia. Most of the women I was seeing were vegetarians. That made it very difficult as well. So the answer is, it's hard to get enough iron in, an, in a heavily menstruating woman. Suppose one is not menstruating, as many of my women listeners are not. So now the issue then is for non-menstruating women and for men to not have too much iron. Iron is very, very strong oxidizing agent. As a matter of fact, it's such a strong oxidizing agent that we produce a special molecule in the body called haptoglobin. And whenever a person's injured and they leak blood, the body binds to the iron in the leaked blood as quickly as possible 
because it's so damaging. So is there a supplement? Is there a gentle iron? Is there a, any type of iron cofactor we should look at? <clears throat> is there a... I, I do not have a magic magic one. I When I'm working with women, I just said, let's try a bunch of different ones. Let's spread the dosage out throughout the day and find one that doesn't cause constipation. That's the issue. That's what I was looking for. The gentle iron is what I always recommend to most of my women. It seems yeah. to be the best absorbed. I think it's called gentle iron. So that's incredibly important. What yes. about milk thistle taking that? Is, it, is, there, is there anything negative about milk thistle that the general public needs to know? I'm not aware of anything. So it used to be in Germany at the standard of care for mushroom poisoning was IV milk thistle. Because again, it's so good at promoting the thyroid production. Um, so uh, and when I have patients who I want to help promote their liver function, so number one, as I said before, is make sure all the nutrients are necessary, not just iron, but all the B vitamins. Almost every B vitamin is used in the liver as part of the detoxification. So good nutrition. But the second part is helping get the stuff out of the liver you might say after it's been detoxified. And that's where the liver function is so important. So that's why the old time naturopaths use what are called cologogs. There are ways to clear out the garbage from the liver. And how did they do that? Are we talking about castor oil packs? Well, yes, castor oil packs, but you got to know what you're doing. You can kind of run into trouble with, with castor oil packs. Um, I I prefer the kind of the standard herbs for this. Uh, Dr. Bastier's favorite uh, herbal remedy for the liver was uh, C&C for Chianthus and Chelidonium, uh, his age-old one. Uh, Ganline root is another, another good one. Uh, 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 Sonara, uh, which is extracted from artichoke, is another good one for detoxifying the liver. But there are a bunch. And, there, and by the way, and you look at my book, The Toxin Solution, I have a whole chapter just on how you help the liver function better. Excellent. And talking about books, where do we get the toxin solution? It's on Amazon. You know, any, any standard bookstore would have it. And do you talk about all the different toxins we're exposed to? Yes. So what I try to do in the book is to first out lay out the case that the primary cause of chronic disease now in North America, probably in the world, but I just look mainly at North America data, is metals and chemicals in the environment. Mm. The metals and chemicals in the environment are more predictive of disease than any other factor that I'm aware of. And the good news is that you get those levels down and people get healthier. Do you believe do you believe in chelation, Dr. Bazzorno? Yes. When we say chelation, there's two ways of doing it. One's IV and the other's oral. So I tend to prefer oral because there's less risk for adverse reactions. But if somebody has high levels, IV is a really good idea. But it has to be with somebody who knows what they're doing because you have to use the right, right dosages. Is that EDTA, DMSA? So it depends on what people are trying to get rid of. So trying to get rid of lead, for example, EDTA is pretty typical. If you want to get rid of mercury, well, DMSA and um, DMPS are what's used. But IV, DMSA, and DMPS, can, you can run into trouble with them. So I much prefer doing oral uh, DMSA for getting rid of mercury and lead. It's much slower we get way less toxicity. So if the liver is toxic, we run into problems. What do you think of the importance of the kidney and lung prevention and health? Uh, absolutely. So my toxic solution, as mentioned, the first chapter is 
here's how toxins causes so much disease. Second chapter is how do you avoid the toxins? And then the next four chapters are how do you help the body get rid of toxins more effectively? How do you clean up the gut? How do you clean up the liver? How do you clean up the kidneys? I don't have one on the lungs. And in retrospect, and maybe the next edition of the book, I'll point something on the lungs as well. Well, we're living in the age of COVID. I think it's important. We're now realizing how important the lung function is. So just give me a general herbal program for the kidneys, if you will. Um, I'm going to give you a little surprising answer first. Sure. And that is the kidneys, like other organs in the body, have tremendous ability to heal. I When I was writing my book, uh, The uh, Toxin Solution, I found this incredible study where they're looking at people with kidney failure. So as you know, and your audience may know, we kind of rank kidney function in five levels. Stage one, everything's fine. Stage five, really bad. Then you're gonna need dialysis and or kidney transplant. So in general, uh, it's stage five when you're below around 20 um, uh, on your EGFR score. So this is a study where we looked at people at stage three, stage four, and stage five. Mm. And all they did was have them stop using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the ibuprofen and all these other kinds of things. Mm. They then monitored their kidney function. After six months, the people at stage five, which had an average EGFR of 12.5, it increased to 26. Just wow. by stopping nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Wow. The point I'm making here is stop the damage, the body will heal. Mm. Pretty remarkable. Now, there are things we can do to help the kidneys heal more quickly. And interestingly enough, a lot of the trouble with decreased kidney function is due to loss of blood supply to the kidneys, not actual damage to the kidneys. Now, we'll be clear. Some people definitely have damage to the kidneys. I'm just talking about the majority because... Yeah. We want to talk about things we can do that will have an impact. So it turns out that for the majority of people, there's some strategies we can use to improve blood supply to the kidneys. So number one, of course, stop the toxins. Nostril and inflammatory drugs are a big factor of causing kidney damage, as are a bunch of environmental toxins. But the, there's a number of ways to improve blood supply. And uh, the ones which I like the best are blueberries, mm -hmm. chocolate. Easy. <laughs> and beetroot, beetroot juice. All three of those, blueberries, chocolate, and beetroot juice have been shown to increase uh, blood flow to the kidneys and improve EGFR. Wow. Easy peasy and delicious to boot. Yeah. And if you were to include a chapter on the lungs now, can you just tell me what some of the key points would be? I wish I could. Honestly, I have not researched it enough to give you a good answer. Fair enough. So we've got the lungs that need to be detailed. So the lungs will be coming up very soon when Dr. Pizzorno has time. When, to when it, if I get a chance, I'm going to dive into it. Well, because you're very concerned about science-based information, and yes. I'm very pleased about that. We know we can do it with the kidneys, the liver. Are there any other organs that need to be cleaned out that we're not dealing with? My The gallbladder, my very favorite of all secondary organs, the throwaway organ that isn't a throwaway organ. What no, can you tell us about the gallbladder? Hi, my friends. Before I go any further, let me take a moment to, to acknowledge my sponsor, Unikey Health at unikeyhealth.com, which is your universal key to health, 
since 1992. I have been a spokesperson for this company for over 30 years. They're the home of all my weight loss plans, the Fab Lasting Bio Builder, which has been featured in national magazines. They also carry the ultimate brain support and the magnesium multitasker. So whether it's weight loss, internal cleansing, or just targeted health support, go to unikeyhealth.com. Tell them Anne Louise sent you. So the gallbladder is kind of a, um, a, a storage area for uh, what's coming out of the liver, and it intentionally dumps whatever there's fat in the meal going past the gallbladder. Uh, unfortunately, because of people's high cholesterol levels, lack of consumption of dietary fiber, people tend to get a very thick uh, gall, gall in the gallbladder, and that easily then forms stones. So I'll take this as an opportunity to caution people against uh, the olive oil flush. Uh, thank about, you. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of people who think that uh, they can do the olive oil flush, which is typically like 48 ounces of olive oil stones don't squish. So these are basically saponified fats is what people see. Stones oh. uh, are much, much harder. But here's the big issue. Not only is to give them false sense of having done something good for the liver, yes. maybe something good for the liver, but, but more importantly, they got a bunch of stones and cause impaction. So mm -hmm. I've had patients who um, did the liver flush, end up in my office with an acute, acute liver, fever, cramps, really, really sick because they get push all that cramping in the gallbladder to force out the gall the gall from the gallbladder well there's a stone in the way multiple stones typically block the duct and now they got all that pressure no place to go wow so don't do the typical gallbladder olive oil apple juice no, folks no i mean I thought, oh i should say this i'm a true believer in natural medicine that does not mean that everything we ever did was right Okay. Yes. And the only way we know what's right or what's wrong is by doing research. Yes. So we've covered most of the organs. <clears throat> what about the skin, the largest organ of the body? If the skin is broken out, has pimples, has red spots, has rosacea, what does that signal to you? Yeah, yeah good good example. Uh, the, the skin is indeed a significant detoxification organ. Um, and the main way I talked about the skin was by using it. So whenever... Whenever we um, go in the sauna and we start sweating, uh, the body realizes that's an opportunity to get rid of toxins. Uh, are, are you aware of the work of Stephen Genuis uh, up in Edmonton, Alberta? No. Oh, brilliant doctor. Uh, he's an MD who's, who's focused a lot on detoxification. And he does this really cool research. Like he took 10 people, uh, put them in a sauna, uh, collected their sweat. He also collected the blood, collected the urine to see what toxins were in each of them. Oh, my kind yeah, of doctor. Yeah. So then what you found is, yeah, the, the sauna is getting that sweating going. A lot of toxins come out in, in the sweat. Uh, very, very effective. But what's really interesting is that he found toxins in the sweat that weren't in the blood or in the urine. So some of these things are so bad, the body has wow. no ability to get rid of them. So yeah. it sequesters them away. To, yeah, okay, go in the deep tissue, sequester away. You know, please don't be too physically physiologically active because if you're circulating, you're causing us trouble. Wow. So away from the body. So the body says, oh, we're gonna have to get rid of it. And I have this theory. Uh, I, I'm I'm not gonna share this original with me. I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one who thought of it, but 
you know, we as a species, we evolved near the equator where it was hot. We sweated a lot. Yes. So our bodies adapted to the situation where we were sweating a lot. So that's one of our detox mechanisms. But when we, when we moved away from the equator to areas where it was much colder, we weren't sweating as much. I'm wondering if we kind of sabotaged one of our normal detox systems. Oh, well, that's a brilliant idea. So the question is, how long should one be in the sauna? Right. Um, so I tried to figure that out. And what I can say is need to be do about a minimum of 20 minutes of good hard sweating uh, to start seeing the, the clinical benefits. What was he seeing in the sweat? Can you give us an example of what he was seeing in the sweat that he wasn't seeing in the blood or the urine? What would really enthrall my audience? Okay, so um, strictly speaking, this is not found. Uh, some of the some of this is found in the blood and the urine, just not enough, and that's the PCBs. Interesting. These are polychlorinated bisphenols. As you know, uh, these were banned over fifty years ago, but they're called persistent organic pollutants because they persist. They persist in the environment and they persist in our bodies when they get into us. The half-life of PCB, so these are, again, these are polychlorinated biphenyls. So that means that they have chlorines attached to them. In order to detoxify them, you have to remove the chlorines, an enzyme called dehalogenase. Well, the dehalogenase does not work very well in humans. So the more chlorines are in a, uh, uh, a PCB, they can have one or two chlorines, they can have, you know, 10, okay? Um, the more chlorines, the harder to break down. The half-life of PCBs in humans ranges from months to years, to decades. Mm. There are some PCBs that have a half-life of 20 years. Oh my God. So as you know, the toxicologists say it takes four half-lives to get rid of a toxin. So if you go to your local neighborhood restaurant and you eat the farm fish, mm. and that farm fish will almost certainly be PCBs that will be in your body for the rest of your life. Now we have an audience of women here. Yes. Why are PCBs a problem? They cause diabetes. As near as I can tell, one quarter of diabetes is due to PCBs. Mm. It cause rheumatoid arthritis in women. Mm. One study I looked at suggests that around 17% of rheumatoid arthritis in women is due to PCBs. My gosh. So sweating is exceedingly important. Mm -hmm. And is there a particular sauna that you approve of? Infrared? Just have to sweat. You know, so we'll make sure the sauna is low toxin. And just something that makes you sweat most, as comfortably as possible. And take a shower afterwards? Absolutely. Clean up afterwards. <laughs> and so now I'm stuck. Now, what do you do with the towels that you're sitting on? What do you do with it? That's my yeah. question. Yeah, the towels are full of toxins. If you put them into the you know washing machine, yeah, you get rid of them. But now they're in the environment. So uh, do you have an answer? That's a hypothetical question. No, I, I just, I, I don't like it, but I don't, I don't have, a, I don't have a better solution. I'm not going to throw away <laughs> the towels after using them. No, no, but who? We always wash our towels. We have an infrared sauna in the house. Um, we didn't talk about the brain and detoxifying the brain. Do you have any insights in that particularly? So, um, a very clear message. The body is also full of um, these. Um, um, the cyclone P450 enzymes, but the same enzymes that are phase one in the liver, those enzymes are all over the body, including the brain, but they're only active when we're sleeping. 
So one of the reasons why people get good sleep, live longer, and have less Alzheimer's, the people don't get good sleep is because while we're sleeping, we detoxify the brain. Mm, so important, so basic, and so fundamental. Mm-hmm. So overlooked. Mm-hmm. We left out the, the GI track. Any insights there? A high fiber, what else? So first off, let's start with an old-time naturopathic adage. Disease begins in the gut. Okay, so naturopaths have known this forever. And what they determined was, first off, People have to eat real food, organically grown. Second, the digestion has to work properly. And third, they have to have the right bacteria in their gut. And fourth, let's make sure that you have proper gut because of integrity. You hear this term leaky gut, okay? Well, leaky gut, we've known about this for decades. So how do you make the, the gut healthy? Again, in my book, I've got a whole chapter on how you make gut healthy. Here's what I do. That is with everything. Number one is stop the damage. What damages the gut? Nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, alcohol. Okay, well, right there, let's stop damage the, the gut. Number two, what damages the gut? Wrong kind of bacteria in the gut. How do you get wrong kind of bacteria in the gut? By taking a lot of antibiotics or by eating a lot of eating food of animals that have taken a lot of antibiotics to put the wrong bacteria in, in the gut. So we have to um, get rid of the, of the bad bacteria. Now, in my book, I, I give a, a, a full protocol I'll describe in a little more detail. Um, so what we want to do is you need to get rid of the bad bacteria. I like to use golden seal for that. Good old golden seal. Good old golden seal. I love Very big in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> we got to bring it back. <laughs> way back when I was in naturopathic medical school, way back in the early 1970s, uh, I, uh, I was also working part-time in medical research. And every weekend, I'd be in the medical school library just studying these natural products. And I found this great study on golden seal that showed that golden seal did not damage the healthy bacteria in the gut. It only got rid of the bad guys like Clostridia. Wow, so I, that's a biggie. Oh, yeah. Now, some more recent research that says it's not quite true. It does have some impact. But the bottom line is it leaves the bacteria, the good bacteria mostly alone. And I've used this in hundreds of patients. Um, golden seal kill off the bad bacteria. But here's something I learned from my poor patients. That's why they call it the practice of medicine for a reason. What happens when you have a lot of toxic bacteria in your gut and you kill them all off? Well, they release their toxic constituents. My patient will come back to me and say, Dr. Pizzorno, you gave me this natural herb, but I felt so sick afterwards. And then also I realized, oh, wait a minute. Of course they're sick. So now you have to give them a lot of fiber to bind to those toxins as they're being released. Then we want to have to get rid of the bad stuff. You give them probiotics and prebiotics to reseed healthy bacteria in the gut. Exactly. So, do you still use Golden Seal prophylactically? I rarely use herbs prophylactically. Oh, let's talk about that as we start to conclude. Tell me why. Uh, a philosophical statement. When we're looking at what at interventions. Do we want to use an intervention that supports the body's own normal mechanisms, or do you want to use interventions that take over control of the body? It's one reason why I've always been really, really hesitant to use drugs, because drugs take over control of what's going on in the body. And sometimes you need to do that. Okay, no, no objection to that. But the majority of the time, the body has the ability to take care of itself if it has the resources it needs. So my first inclination is, how do you support the body's normal processes? Don't just go in and do a big intervention. 
I like that idea. Why did you become an ND in the first place? I mean, you obviously have a very, very investigative mind. Why did you choose naturopathic medicine over allopathic? So, uh, quick story of my life. So I was working. So I was working in. So first off, I graduated with a uh, bachelor of science with honors from Harvey Mudd College in Southern California and went off to a doctoral program at Cornell University. It's at the height of the Vietnam War and program was involved and was contributing to the war effort and I decided I want to do that. So I decided to get involved in medicine instead. So I came to Seattle, started working as a research assistant at a local university. And I was, and as I was doing that, I was thinking, you know, I think I'll get a PhD in medical research because I really, really enjoy this stuff. And then a, a, an event happened that changed my life and turned out changed the lives of a lot of other people. So I was having dinner with my roommate from college uh, with his wife. And during the dinner, she said, well, my uh, rheumatoid arthritis is cured. I said, what? First of all, I didn't know she had had rheumatoid arthritis. She'd had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So since she was a teenager, she had chronic swelling of hands and knees. And conventional medicine had not been successful for her. And what was interesting about that was I was actually working at the Department of Rheumatology at University of Washington School of Medicine. I was working with MDs and PhDs trying to find a cure for arthritis. I'd love doing the work. This was destiny. <laughs> oh, God, yes. So anyway, um, so we're having dinner with this with my 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 friends. And I was saying, well, what'd you do? I mean, this is an incurable disease. I know it's incurable because I'm working one of the labs. There's, there's a bunch of other labs all over the country trying to find the cure. And she said, well, I went to a naturopathic doctor. I said, what's that? So uh, I went to this naturopathic doctor and asked him, so what'd you do with my friend? He said, well, taught her how to eat properly, and I detoxified her liver. Mm. What the heck does her liver and her diet have to do with her <laughs> I mean, remember, this is 50 years ago, okay? And yeah. I, I was I was deep into the medical paradigm, so it didn't make any sense to me. And so, and, but also during this time, when I decided that like graduate school that I was in, uh, I had become a vegetarian. And so I asked the uh, MDs I was working with uh, at, at the University of Washington, what do these changes mean? Because I saw my body go through some changes of being vegetarian, and I asked them, the MD I was working with most closely, I said, what do they mean? And not, no, not actually not the MD I worked most closely with, uh, one of the MDs that was in the lab. And he and I used to talk philosophically a lot. Um, we rarely, uh, we got to a place where we virtually never agreed. But anyway, early on, <laughs> So, um, sorry, making the story a little longer than, than necessary. Uh, but I asked this MD, you know, what, what does it mean? He said, there are errors in your observation because diet does not affect you. Huh. You know, nobody would say that now, or few would say that nowadays. But remember, 50 years ago, that was that was dogma. That's what everybody, what everybody in the medical profession believed. Very true. So I decided to ask the MD who had, who had cured my friend the same question. Rather than blow me off, he walks to his, his bookshelf, pulls off Guidance in Medical Physiology. Now, as you may know, at that time, Guidance was kind of the major textbook in physiology for medical schools. Yes. He shows me physiologically what's going on in my body from becoming a vegetarian. I thought, well, that's interesting. This naturopath understands physiology better than the MDs. But I thought the MDs knew everything about medicine. <laughs> okay. okay, so that that wasn't enough. Okay, But now, now I've got my, my scientific interest. Then I was working with another MD in the lab. I was being her assistant. And we were uh, looking at a new drug for rheumatoid arthritis. And we were doing an animal model. 
So the animal model that was used at that time for rheumatoid arthritis was a duck model because they basically had genetically bred some ducks to get swollen feet, which are really easy to evaluate in, in the animals because if, if their joints are swollen, they're just really easy, easy to see. So we got in the animals uh, for, the, for the research study and we uh, set up a, a lab for them. And we went, in, went into the lab with this, I went to the lab with this woman and we saw the ducks and there they were in these cages looking miserable, okay? You know, just and looking miserable. So being a kind-hearted person, which you'd like in your doctor, uh, she got to go with her husband and they found an, an empty lab and they created a paradise for ducks. So they put in a, 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 a got some plywood and some sand, put in a duck run, got a little plastic swimming pool so they could sw swim. Then they got some uh, fresh fruits and vegetables to add to their uh, duck chow. And also they went from these mopey looking animals to quacking away, running up and down, just everybody's happy. Okay, now we're happy, we're good. Now we're waiting for these animals that were bred to get rheumatoid arthritis. So we tried our new drug and we waited and we waited and we waited. Mm -hmm. They never got the arthritis. Wow. So we had a good and wait party for this MD and everybody was consoling her for the failure of her experiment. And I was looking at this and saying, wait a minute. If you give them a proper diet and environment, mm. they don't get arthritis, so they don't need your drugs. Right. You just found That's a good arthritis. thing. That's a good thing. And you're ignoring it. So at that point, I, now, now, of course, that by itself is usually not enough, but sure, it gives an idea where to go. So at this point, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Well, conventional medicine has done a lot of good things. It's got some real blinders. So I said, you know, I think I'll become an naturopathic doctor instead of a, a PhD in medical research. Long answer to your short question. And now we have you here today. So tell me what's what's next on the agenda for you, Dr. Bizzorno. I'm I'm really, really deep into unimportant molecules. I'm doing a lot of study on that. So um, uh, as I mentioned, I just talked about Florentin. You know, talked about fol folate versus folic acid. There are so many other examples of these molecules. But, but how, let's look at the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. So it turns out there's a bunch of these flavonoids that are antiviral, protect us against viral infections. They're leaving the food supply. So I'm, I'm thinking when people think about the immune system, we think about you know the the two the two main immune system. You got innate immune system, uh, which is kind of your immediate response. You got the humorous immune system, the longer term, much more powerful immune system, but it takes several days to activate. And you also have a mucous membranes, help protect us from infection. But there's a fourth one that people don't think about. How about the presence of natural molecules from foods that are antiviral? Mm. Why, why, are they, why are there antiviral molecules in foods? Well, because those plants are trying to protect themselves as well. Yeah, they have antiviral, yeah. antibacterial, anti-ultraviolet, anti-cancer, all these molecules from food to protect themselves. So when we eat those foods, we protect ourselves as well. But what happens when you make the food weak? When you make the food dependent on chemicals to grow and to resist uh, uh, insects and things like this. The plants get weaker and weaker as they produce less and less of these molecules because they're now using external chemicals to replace those functions. Well, they guess what, then the humans- Then we get even weaker. Then we get weaker too, because these protective molecules aren't in the food supply. So 
very briefly, every time you tell one of these great stories, I, I have 10 more questions. My last question, what do, what do you eat? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So my wife and I do try to practice what we preach. So that means we actually make a significant investment. So let me start with saying we're growing as much of our own food as we can. But oh, obviously, I salute you. Yeah, well, yeah, we can't grow all our own food. And uh, I would say we're not even at the point where it's a significant percentage of our calories, but it's, it's, it's getting there. Okay. So we grow our own food. And we only eat organically. We you you won't find a plastic container in our, in our home. Uh, you'll see that all the water that comes in our house goes through a, a filter. We've got this MRF sixteen filter in our air air uh, air circulation system, air conditioning. Uh, we low, use low low um, phthalate healthy beauty aids. Uh, you know, we do everything we can to avoid. So, what's my breakfast look like? Yes. Today, so for breakfast today, I had yogurt, nut butters, and some. Um, plum uh, brulee that from our own plums in our own garden and the blueberries are from our own garden so it's blueberries typical about a cup of blueberries or a cup of, of yogurt a bunch of nut butters and then some um, uh, plum brulee on top of it that's my breakfast yum and lunch so lunch uh is pretty variable uh, my favorite is greek salad okay just fairly straightforward and then for for din dinner, we have uh, beans. Uh, we eat fish once a week. I'd rather not eat any fish at all because I'd rather be a vegetarian, but I find I'm healthier if I eat fish once a week. Um, so beans, uh, dairy products, vegetables, salads, um, uh, cucumbers from our garden, uh, lots of kale from our garden, snap peas, you know, just real food. You know what I like? That you actually walk the walk try to. You walk the walk. Tell us again where we can get your book, Toxin Solutions, on Amazon yeah. or wherever fine books are sold. Yep, very simple, The Toxin Solution. And if you have any doctors listening, get my textbook, Clinical Environmental Medicine, because uh, I and Walter Green lay out there what doctors need to know about how to diagnose and treat uh, and get rid of the environmental toxins. I think all my people want to know about that. Would you say that again a little more slowly? Okay. So my book, um, textbook is called Clinical Environmental Medicine. Is that a, a newer textbook? Yeah, that's my newest textbook, Clinical Environmental Medicine. Oh, uh, where can we get that? Amazon. Oh. Again, remember, it's, it is technical. It's, it's meant for healthcare professionals, but I think a smart, well-educated consumer would find it really useful as well. Like all my listeners. <laughs> if they're listening to First Lady of Nutrition, they're smart and educated and want that book. Thank yes. you for being my guest, Dr. Bizzorno. Thank you for inviting me. Good, Great talk with you. Lovely talking to you. And thank you everyone for tuning in yet once again to First Lady of Nutrition. Have a marvelous, lovely, healthy week of peace, health, prosperity, and shalom. Shalom of Racha, everybody. Please don't forget to subscribe and like First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Thank you so very much.